back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if you'd like to support us or reward yourself, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. For a quick look ahead, let's see what we're covering today. Resident shift lengths and patient safety. We'll also have a look at advanced practice providers and their effect on the emergency department, as well as a risk score for scalp hematomas, the risk of arrest in children, and capsaicin cream for nausea and vomiting. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which were brought to you by the delightful Carmen Wolf, Nicole McCoy, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. The first article from this week was titled Effect of Patient Safety on Resident Physician Schedule Without 24-Hour Shifts out of the New England Journal of Medicine. The general trend in recent years has been to decrease the number of hours in a row that training doctors are made to work. This has led to a lot of fear that they won't be as well trained unless they've been made to suffer through inhumanely long shifts just to, I don't know, toughen them up. I suppose the idea is that you should be so good at doing your job that you can literally practice in your sleep. Or else, let's be honest, you won't get any sleep at all. So besides doctor wellness, the other driving force behind this is, of course, possibly to improve patient safety. And intuitively, this makes sense. Of course, most people don't feel like they're at their best at the end of a very long shift. So a study in 2014 out of the New England Journal of Medicine showed that there were increased error rates when shifts extended beyond 24 hours. However, not all subsequent findings have supported this. The FIRST first trial showed no changes in death or complications when shift limits were applied to surgical interns. And the iCompare trial showed similar results with no change in death among medical patients. So this study adds their data to the pool. This was a multi-center cluster randomized crossover trial performed in six pediatric ICUs in the United States and actually had some interesting methodology. So they identified ICUs who previously used extended resident shifts and then each site designed their own intervention to eliminate extended shifts. The sites served as their own controls matched by the time of year and the results were pretty varied. There were reduced error rates at one site similar error rates at two sites, and increased error rates at three sites. The reorganization at these sites actually led to less worked hours each week, more resident sleeping time, and improved neurobehavioral performance testing by the residents. However, there were also more handoffs done because they weren't working for as long, and an increased resident workload with more patients per resident. After adjusting for these confounders, though, there was no longer an increase in errors. So what it seems like to me is that having well-rested residents doesn't necessarily create better patient safety without also ensuring that safe patient workloads are being met. In a spoonful, eliminating extended resident work hours showed a signal towards increased incidence of harmful medical errors by residents in pediatric ICUs. And that brings us to the second article, the impact of advanced practice provider staffing on emergency department care, productivity, flow, safety, and experience out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Over recent years, there's been a huge uptick in the amount that advanced practice providers have contributed to emergency department care. 
In 2008, one in 12 patients was managed by a physician's assistant, and one in 18 patients was managed by nurse practitioners. By 2016, those numbers had increased to one in six and one in eight, respectively. So we're seeing rapid growth in this field, and that makes it crucial that we understand it so that we can better optimize our system around it. This was a study of over 13 million patients across 94 emergency departments between 2014 and 2018. What they saw was that advanced practice providers treated lower complexity patients, and they also treated half as many patients per hour as doctors did. So that being the case, increasing advanced practice provider staffing doesn't seem to lower staffing costs. And that goes along with what they also found, which was that there was no observable effect of advanced practice provider coverage on emergency department flow. But then I guess a good thing would be that there was no effect of their coverage on clinical quality or patient experience. These are kind of weird data to see, honestly. I would very much like to see this further studied because it seems like these valuable resources are actually being underutilized if this is the case. Anyways, in a spoonful, we need to keep a close eye on our use of advanced practice providers in emergency department staffing models. In settings where they are treating lower acuity patients, their coverage does not reduce clinical quality or patient experience, but neither did it lower staffing costs or improve emergency department flow. And now the third article, the Infant Scalp Score, a validated tool to stratify risk of traumatic brain injury in infants with isolated scalp hematoma out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. We love to talk about hard decisions here at the journal feed, always weighing pros and cons, risks, and benefits. Yet another hard decision is whether or not we need to get CTs for infants that come in with scalp hematomas. These hematomas may be the only sign that a clinically important traumatic brain injury, I'll shorten those to TBIs, has occurred. But that being said, not every child with a scalp hematoma has a TBI either. And having a good risk stratification tool in these children is especially important since infants are among the hardest patients to assess and they're also the most sensitive to ionizing radiation. So this study used the PCARN TBI database and researchers identified infants under one year of age with findings of isolated scalp hematoma. A total of nearly 1300 patients met inclusion criteria and 462 of them or 36% of them had a CT head done. Of those scanned, only 12 had a clinically important TBI, defined as death, need for neurosurgical intervention, intubation for at least 24 hours, or hospitalization for two or more nights as a result of the TBI. So those 12 patients were included in the 59 that showed positive CT, meaning that they showed intracranial bleeding, pneumocephalus, cerebral edema, skull fracture, or diastasis of the skull. So on these patients, the infant scalp score involves grading the risk based on the patient's age, the size of the hematoma, and its location. Researchers found that no infant with an isolated scalp hematoma and an infant scalp score less than 5 had a clinically significant TBI. And if their score was less than 4, then no TBIs were found on CT. So from this, the authors suggest getting a CT head for infants with isolated scalp hematoma if they meet the threshold of five or more points on the infant scalp scale. This cutoff would have missed three infants with TBIs, but none requiring intervention in this study. Keep in mind that none of this scoring was designed for infants in which non-accidental trauma is suspected. 
So in a spoonful, the infant scalp score provides TBI risk stratification recommendations for infants with isolated scalp hematomas to help you decide when to get a head CT. And then we move on to the fourth article titled The Risk Factors for Peri-Intubation Cardiac Arrest in the Pediatric Emergency Department out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. We usually tend to know more about adult medicine. After all, we spend a lot more time as adults than we do as children. So we already know that hypotension, hypoxemia, absence of preoxygenation, obesity, and age over 75 are associated with peri-intubation cardiac arrest in adults. But what about children? What should we be looking out for? This was a single-center case control study over a nine-year period, covering 543 intubations from which 21 cases of pediatric peri-intubation cardiac arrest were caught. Most of these cases achieved ROSC, and over half of them survived to discharge. These cases were matched with four controls who were intubated but did not arrest. After analysis, the predictors for peri-intubation cardiac arrest were age less than one year, delayed capillary refill time, systolic and diastolic hypotension, hypoxia, more than one intubation attempt, no use of induction agent or paralytic, and an underlying pulmonary disease. Of course, some of these measures, though, have their faults, like blood pressures are sometimes hard to take, cap refills are pretty subjective, and the lack of drugs might mean that they were already in a peri-arrest state. The strongest association with peri-intubation cardiac arrest was hypoxia, or inability to measure pulse oximetry, for an odds ratio of 66.6. .6. Keep in mind, though, that the confidence interval spanned from 12 to 349. So when combining risk factors, the two greatest together were hypoxia and age less than one year. So with these factors identified, the next step might be to design a risk score and decision aid. And maybe we'll see that in coming years. In a spoonful, hypoxia or the inability to measure pulse oximetry was the most powerful predictor of pediatric peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Add to that an age less than one year and you've got a decent accuracy in predicting an event. Finally, the last article titled A Pilot Trial of Topical Capsaicin Cream for Treatment of Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Marijuana and its derivatives have been sweeping across North America, and it's so it's good to be up to date on their complications and what we can do for them. Some may have experienced cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. It's a doozy and it can be kind of hard to manage. This study was a pilot trial to evaluate the safety and efficacy of capsaicin as a treatment. Capsaicin cream is an over-the-counter topical agent that has shown some anecdotal evidence of efficacy, and so it's always nice to see trials that put those claims to the test. This was a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled study, which enrolled adult patients with suspected cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome in the emergency department. Patients were randomized to receive either topical 0.1% capsaicin cream versus a placebo moisturizing cream that was applied to their abdomens. A total of 30 patients were recruited, 17 to the capsaicin group and 13 to the placebo. Nausea was then recorded by a validated visual analog scale at 30 minutes and at 60 minutes. The researchers found a non-significant decrease in nausea at 30 minutes and a statistically significant difference in nausea at 60 minutes, with a difference of 32%. For the capsaicin group, 29.4% reported complete symptom resolution, versus 0% in the placebo group. But all in all, this was a small study, it was underpowered, but I guess it was good for idea generating, and it looks like this might justify a larger study. 
and a spoonful topical capsaicin cream reduced nausea and vomiting in patients with suspected cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome in this small RCT. And that's it, my friends. Let's do a rapid review of everything that we learned today. From the first article, sleeping more feels like the right thing to do, but just getting better rested isn't enough to improve patient safety if the rest of the system isn't also adjusted properly. Second, advanced practice provider coverage in emergency departments has been increasing. They see lower acuity patients and don't seem to decrease quality of care. On the other hand, though, they also don't decrease staffing costs and they don't increase flow through the department. And next to the third article, if an infant arrives with a scalp hematoma and is otherwise well, consider using the infant scalp score to decide whether or not to get a head CT. This study showed that a threshold of five or more should be your threshold for getting a CT. Next from the fourth article, pediatric peri-intubation cardiac arrest is a serious thing. The number one risk factor to look out for is hypoxia, and consider combining that with age less than one year. And finally, the last article, a small study shows that capsaicin cream may decrease nausea and vomiting in cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And now that's really it for this week, everybody. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.